Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. You're very welcome back to this Sunday's Off The Ball. Neil Tracy here with you until 7 o'clock this evening. It is time now for the Sunday Paper Review where we're going to be joined by Cleena Foley of Off The Bench and Vincent Hogan, Chief Sports Writer for the Irish Independent. Going to run through the back pages first though because there's one story dominating absolutely everything today and that is Rachel Blackmore. We'll start with the sports supplement of the Sunday Times picture of Rachel Blackmore celebrating her victory yesterday at the Aintree Grand National I don't feel male or female right now I don't even feel human Rachel Blackmore makes history as the first woman to win the Grand National writing Manila Times 11 to 1 winner for Henry de Bromhead as she savours that moment there and it's a similar story across pretty much everything the Sunday Independent Queen of Aintree the picture they lead is the moment just after Rachel Blackmore is crossing the line on Manila uh, on uh, Manila Times I should say rather than Manila Indo Blackmore makes history to become first female national jockey uh, national winning jockey uh, I never even imagined I'd get a ride in this race let alone be standing here looking at the back of this trophy is what she says I can't believe I am Rachel Blackmore genuinely I still feel like that little kid and I just can't believe I'm me uh, some brilliant quotes from her to be, to be honest uh, on the back page of the Mail on Sunday we have a picture National Treasure as Rachel Blackmore celebrates as well also the bottom Bevin, Par- uh, Bevin Almighty Parsons on fire in, Ir- uh, in Irish Cruise as Leinster fight back to see off Exeter that's all the rugby coverage and also uh, there's a lot of coverage GA wise uh, GA under fire Shane McGrath with an exclusive here saying that anger at revelations around training breaches in the GA shows no signs of abating with strong interventions yesterday from a government minister and the Gaelic Players Association we'll be getting to that as well and also on their front page as well they have Ain't That Grand Rachel Wins National she's on the front and back pages of pretty much every single paper today the Irish Sun this Sunday National Treasure Rachel rewrites history again a picture of her with the trophy and as she crosses the line sign of the times serial winner Rachel Blackmore did it on the big occasion once more on board Manila Times Rachel's a national treasure is the headline on the Sunday World. Blackmore conquers Aintree. I don't feel male or female right now. I don't even feel human. I can't believe I'm Rachel Blackmore. That's that great quote all over again. Then on the Sunday Mirror, we have a few different stories on the back page, but once again, it is Rachel. Your time, Rachel, first woman to win the national. But it's not your time, Pep. City title charge grinds to a halt. That's after Leeds beat Manchester City yesterday. And a a story some papers are going with as well. La La Land, agent ready to make Erling the first £1 million a week player. Uh, reports that super agent Mino Raiola is planning to make Erling Haaland the first £1 million a week footballer if he if he is to be leaving uh, Brucey Dormant at the end of the season and the star this Sunday have that as well £1 million per week landmark deals needed to sign superstar Erling and then on the right a sign of the times Rachel Blackmore rewrote the history books by becoming the first jockey or first female jockey to win the Randocks Grand National Vincent Hogan and Cleena Foley are with me and guys I think there's pretty much only one place we could start I was saying it earlier on to Gavin Riley here in News Talk that in the couple of years I've been involved in this Sunday show a lot of the times we come in instantly we're going for what's on the back pages first thing we do when we come into the office and if I ever see a sports story on both the front and back pages it's either something absolutely wonderful or I'm getting ready to call the solicitor here to double check that we're okay to speak about it. Thankfully, it's the former that we're talking about today. A brilliant story and some brilliant coverage of Rachel Blackmore right across the Sunday papers today. Yeah, Neil, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you have to remind yourself that this this race is 182 years old. Um, and it's it's only very recently when you think of that history. I think it was 1977 was the first female jockey to ride in it, uh, Charlotte Brew, and it was 1982. Geraldine Rees was the first female finisher. So I suppose it's it's little wonder that the media is obsessing about the historic nature of a female rider winning this. But I I really enjoyed Rachel's interview at the end of it yesterday I, I, because I, I do detect and I certainly detected this in Cheltenham as well that she's really weary of the gender side to this conversation. She wants to be judged as a jockey. And when you listen to 
Ruby Walsh speaking about her and AP McCoy speaking about her. And, and those two kind of gods of this sport have retired in the very recent past, as has Barry Geraghty. It's very clear that Rachel Blackmore is the one who has stepped into their shoes now, that she is the standout national hunt jockey around, not the standout female jockey, the standout jockey. And even to a totally uneducated eye like mine, when I'm watching a race, and, and I actually, I, I knew the result of the race yesterday before I got to see it. So I had the luxury of watching her from start to finish in the race. And it was just poetry in motion. I mean, the way she positioned that horse on the rail, there wasn't a single moment where you thought, oh, that was tricky. That was nearly a problem for her. Composure, elegance, patience, um, just a magnificent show of class in the saddle. And, and I think that's where we're at now. My, my favourite quote that I've read in the papers this morning is from Bruff Scott, mm. who says, Rachel Blackmore has told us to grow up to judge riders on their merits, not on whether they're male, female, or any other gender. And I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think that's a great piece today. The Bruff Scott is actually probably the best piece um, because of its analysis as well, Neil. And um, by the way, uh, mail, the Mail on Sunday actually have a piece with Geraldine Reese, a kind of a first person piece with her, which is lovely. And she said, she says, Rachel said she didn't feel female, she didn't feel male, she didn't even feel human. Well, I think she's superhuman. But the Brooke Scott piece is really important. And I know, Vincent, you were at Chatham, I think, this year, were you? But um, because the, the, the defining point, perhaps, of her career this year, up until yesterday, uh, was the Gold Cup in Cheltenham where she didn't, where she, she, where she picked the wrong horse, if you like. Um, and, and Jack Kennedy went on Manello Indo and she finished second. And her face, I remember her face, watching her face after coming out of that race. And you knew then just how competitive she was. And her Cheltenham this year was extraordinary. Not only was she top jockey, but it was the falls. She had the bad falls she had, as well as the amazing victories. So to miss the big double in Cheltenham, I think that really, really hurt her. But it just shows, I mean, Tony McCoy's, put it beautifully yesterday when he was saying about he said that you know you judge a brilliant jump jockey by how physically and it, 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 he said it's just such a physically and a mentally demanding sport and he said she's got it both ways and like even if you just look at her I mean the, the amount of rides that she's ridden she's ridden she has she's so far this season she has 506 rides so she's 10 behind um in the Irish to Paul Townend but she has she, he's only ridden 284 rides. That just tells people the amount of work this woman puts in and the amount of work she's willing to put in as well. And I think that, that was captured yesterday. And it was so lovely to see her. I mean, you're absolutely right, Vincent, as well. She has, you know, for the last two years, battled to take the gender out of her job, job description. Um, and she absolutely did it yesterday. Yeah, it certainly is. That uh, Brough Scott piece is page th two and three of the Sunday Times. There's a couple of really good quotes in it as well. It was something I'd I'd marked down and you mentioned it as well, Kleena, that, you know, as good as Cheltenham was for her, she like she had an eventful week even when she wasn't winning. There were some falls. It, the quote here, like, it's not as if she avoided disaster amid all the euphoria of her astonishing treble on the second day at Cheltenham. It's often forgotten she also took two thumping falls to get back yeah. to win the last by totally outwitting her rivals with a masterclass in waiting in front in the champion bumper. She's light, she's lithe, but something else was very evident at Cheltenham. She's determined to be a winner. And Vincent, I think, as you were saying, that's kind of summing up the story at the moment as well, is that we can take the, the female out of, out of jockey at the moment now. It is that Rachel Blackmore is, she is the best around at the moment. 100%. And, and, and let's be honest, you don't be as successful as she is now without being really tough, really resilient, and to some extent being ruthless. And, and Kleena is right about... If you look at her reaction to Manello Indo winning the mm -hmm. Gold Cup and she comes home second, she, she had the, the choice <laughs> of Henry Bromhead's horses. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And she's absolutely fuming with herself because, yeah. and she spoke about it afterwards. I remember that she did an interview with Ruby Walsh subsequently. And she said for all of the history-making side of Cheltenham, where she, she was the leading jockey, the first woman to do that, six winners, she went home absolutely fixated on why didn't she pick Minella Window, and she could have won the Gold Cup as well. And that's the ruthlessness that the McCoys and the, Ger the, Ger uh, the Gerrities and Rubies 
all had, and she's got it in spades. Yeah, I, and like I said, there was another lovely line uh, Scott has as well. I think he says, steel over strength. And she's, you know, she is, she's this incredibly quiet, um, you know, modest person, but you can see the steel in her. And, you know, a lot of the top jockeys are exactly like that. So that, you know, everything, what what really struck me, I'm, I hope Shark Hannon was having a, a bottle of champagne yesterday because he was the man who gave her, he was the guy who kind of encouraged her really to go pro when it really wasn't the done thing. So, you know, he's been a huge factor. But the groom yesterday, I just thought as well, like Laura Hoy was, was, the, was the groom of the winning horse. But so many women and girls work in the racing industry. And if you talk to trainers, you talk to people who work in stables, men and women, a lot of the time they'll say, you know, the boys, the grooms, the boys want to go racing, the girls want to mind the horses. That's just a sort of, a, it's, a, it's a stereotype. But I do think because she comes from this non-racing background, you know, now never forget she has a degree in equine studies. So she understands, you know, everything you need to know about horses as well as being a brilliant rider. And she is, Vincent's right, she's a beautifully still rider. But, you know, it's, I think it's the, it's, it's her, the history yesterday. You can't ignore it because I think that her background and her work ethic and everything about her will inspire lots of, of women who who might have been content to be stable stable workers and lads and and uh, and grooms to, to actually also think I could be a jockey. Mm, certainly. And Vincent, I think as well, it's it's also outside of her own achievement. It is something that probably the racing industry badly needed as well, given the, the headlines that they have had to endure over the last few months. There's no doubt about that, Neil, though I, I kind of feel slightly nauseous when I heard Ed Chamberlain on uh, ITV yesterday describing her as riding to the rescue of racing. Yeah. I mean, I, we could do without that kind of narrative, really. And, and obviously referring to the great unspeakable, the Gordon Elliott story. Um, the, my favourite quote of the coverage in today is Marcus Townsend in uh, the Mail. He quotes her thus, this is a massive deal for me personally, not the fact I'm a female. The thing that hit me when I crossed the line was that I'd won the national. Not that I'm the first female to win the national. And I think when she says things like that, she's very mindful of the fact that the Katie Walshes and the Nina Carberries were there before her and, and, and going to Cheltenham and winning races. It's 11 years ago we saw those two Irish women fight it out in, up, up, the, up the hill in Cheltenham. So I think this is why she's very kind of weary of this thing of she's setting new, new st- she is setting new standards. But she's setting new standards, period, not for females. I mean, we had that bubble burst a long time ago. Mm. And Clina, on that as well, like even uh, in the mail, Dominic King is writing about her as well. And the fact that he's referring back to an interview at the start of Cheltenham last season when Gabriel Clark was interviewing for I- her for ITV and he was asking her about, you know, do you want to be a star? And she was saying, well, like, you know, to me, Beyonce is a star. I'm not that. But as he says at the end of the piece then as well, does she want to be a star? There's no longer an option. To go back to that question from 13 months ago, if Blackmore doesn't know the answer, there's an easy way to find it. All she has to do is look in the mirror. And the headline as well, Blackmore got to the top with hard work and talent and never wanted to be a star. Sorry, Rachel, you're a star now. Yeah, and she's a genderless star. That's the most important thing. And I think that by making history yesterday and finally putting that thing of a woman winning the national, and as Vincent said, you know, 1977 was the first time a woman rode in the national. There have only been 18 others, and and the figures vary, but I looked it up last night and went through. Some people are saying 20, some people are saying 32. I think that's the amount of women who've ever raced in it. But women who, who have who have been saddled up for the Grand National, is I think she was she's the 19th of them. That's the most important thing is now that's put to bed now and I really like Vincent I think that that conversation has ended now and will end um, but I do think that because of her background as well that the fact that she doesn't come from racing dynasty it has encouraged an awful lot of you know I would reckon men and women in 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 her sport um, but particularly women I think because there was always that stereotype before, you know, and it, going right back to Ginger McCain, you know, that nonsensical quote about a woman, you know, there's no place for a woman in the national um, back in the 70s. But, you know, that's put to rest now. You know, the word queen is used all the time and I'm a boomer, you know, so I, I, I see it misused on social, you know, media, you know, to rah-rah, it's just kind of fangirling for women going, oh, you're the queen of it, you know. I, th- I think, you know, let's take, the, um, let's take the gender out of it and just say she is the monarch of the way room now. It's a good way of putting it, Lena. Also, 
to move on from Rachel Blackmore herself, like it's been an absolutely brilliant couple of months for for Irish racing at the the two main festivals, Cheltenham and Aintree as well, because Henry de Bromhead, given Rachel's achievement, he's he's not really getting too much of a look in, unfortunately for him. I don't think he's going to mind too much. He has the he has the trophies that'll keep him happy enough. But as Marcus Armitage in the Sunday Independent says, though Blackmore will make the headlines, the horse's water for trainer Henry de Bromhead who three weeks ago became the first man to win Cheltenham's holy trinity of races in one hit, has also matched his 1-2 in the Gold Cup with a 1-2 in the National in the same season, surely in itself one of the greatest training feats in the history of jump racing. What has what, what has Henry de have been doing for the last couple of years? He's a name, obviously, Vincent, that has been cropping up more and more with winners and winners, and I know he would have picked up a lot of um, a lot of horses from Henry de Bromhead that would have turned into winners at Cheltenham, but... An incredible achievement for him. Oh, it's it's incredible. I mean, the, the common denominator here between jockey and trainer is a complete lack of ego. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're watching Henry de Bromhead and they were trying to get a good quote out of him at Aintree yesterday and trying totally in vain because all he wants to do is thank people and express how lucky he is. Very, very similar to the, the mindset that, that Rachel herself takes. Like, previously... It always struck me that Henry was certainly behind, obviously, Willie Mullins and Gordon Elliott. They were the, the main two. And going over to Cheltenham every year, it was how they get on. But he has becoming be, becoming in, in increasingly stronger um, each year. But what he's achieved this time is probably ridiculous. But what it also tells us is that English racing is in a pretty difficult position at the moment. I think they had one finisher in the first 11 home yesterday. They had a rotten Cheltenham. I mean, I, I don't know how many winners Irish, Irish winners there were. There were certainly in the 20s, which is unheard of. So there's a, there's a, a separate debate uh, probably going to happen here, Neil, about the state of English racing, because all of the good horses are being bought and brought to Ireland. And that was not historically the case. Certainly, yeah. And, like, what is... It was something I know that cropped up. We were doing our Cheltenham show on the week of Cheltenham as well, how how sorry a state English racing was and we were getting a couple of contributors from the UK and I think at the start of the week the consensus was this this is something that's, you know, there's peaks and troughs and this will pass. But by the time Thursday and Friday rolled around, I think there was a realisation that they were headed towards a, a mega crisis. Is it something that Irish racing is doing particularly well or is it something that Brit- British racing is doing particularly bad? Well, I, I don't pretend to know enough about racing to answer that really, Neil, but it does strike me that the the horses that cost the most money are ending up in Irish yards um, because of the training of Willie Mullins, of Gordon Elliott up to his recent situation, and of Henry de Bromhead, Jessica Harrington, people like that. I think that the money donors are sending far more of their expensive purchases to Ireland now than they ever did before. Uh, we have a few minutes to go here before we take an ad break. We've probably got around five minutes, so I don't want to dive straight in with the all the heavy GA coverage uh, that's in the papers because there's a lot to get through there. Uh, and I don't want to have to break that up with an ad break in four minutes' time. But, Clean, if you were to pick out something small for us to chat through over the next five minutes, what would you be going towards? Um, well, there's one piece that's actually I, I, it, that jumped out at me, which is uh, with uh, I think Mick Clifford in the Mail on Sunday, and it's with John Egan of Westmead, yes. Westmead footballer who retired. Um, uh, but it, I, I, I had never realised the seriousness of his kidney disease, and he's actually gone on a transplant list now, and it's a really interesting piece, and also really interesting from the point of view that organ donations have dropped hugely. I think 30% uh, during COVID. So he's really keen to get the to get the the news out there that you know about um, organ organ donation and organ transplant. It's a really good piece, I think. It is, yeah. So this is Michael Clifford speaking to former Westmead footballer John Egan in page 84 and 85, two-page spread in the mail on Sunday. So John Egan, he suffers from something called Berger's disease, which is something he's uh, been dealing with since his mid-teens, since around he was, he was around 15 years old. It was something he was managing throughout his playing career up until the point in around 2018 when he just he just couldn't he just couldn't deal with the demands I suppose of of intercounty football anymore he says by that stage his kidney function this was 2018 had dropped to 30% 3 years on it now registers at just 9% and he details I suppose the 
the struggles he has on a day-to-day basis of his life now is just he works he, he you know he has a job he's a, a, a recruitment consultant with Dublin-based Solace IT so he works he rests and that is his life essentially at the moment and the detail as you say Clean as well the transplant list he's on it's a long one last month there were 415 patients on the Beaumont Hospital Kidney Centre transplant list with just 16 transplants having taken place in the first two months of the year decreased donors remain the primary supplier of organs and just one of those 16 operations this year involved a living donor underlying the importance of the wider public signing up to organ donation it's a it's a tough read at times Vincent but it has a pretty important message as well a hugely important message and it's a really good piece by Michael Clifford I have to say um, it's it's really shocking I have to say when you read that line of 9% kidney function at the moment and he's on the transplant mm-hmm. list and, and what the piece brings home to you as well the collateral damage of COVID is spreading so far and wide. And this is another example of waiting lists in in the health system that, you know, we're so preoccupied with COVID figures now and the vaccination rollout. There's such a huge subplot to all of that. And this young man, the way he describes himself just coming home from work and really being physically exhausted, even the idea of a, a 20 minute walk is beyond him. His wedding has been put back as well. Um, it's it just for those of us feeling sorry about not being able to go out and play golf at the moment. Yeah. I tell you, it puts us in our place. It certainly. Yeah. Go ahead, his Tina. Kidney, his kidney function um, at the time of you know in the later stages of his career was was down to thirty percent. It's an extraordinary story, but absolutely spot on, uh, Vincent as well. Because I think that we're going to be talking later on about you know should we be back at sport? When should the GA be back? All of these things. But when you read something like this, it does put everything into perspective. Hugely, and as you mentioned, the the impact COVID has had on. Uh, transplants. Last week he travelled to Beaumont Hospital to meet with the team of medics and inside the next fortnight he should formally be placed on the list. Transplants in Ireland last year dropped from 274 to 190 so a 30% reduction and as he says himself if a deceased donor if it is a deceased donor it can unfortunately be a bit of a lottery from one to four years but if I get a friend or a family member that is a good match for me it can be anything from six months. Uh, that's where we're going to have to leave it on that I'm afraid we are running out of time uh, but John Egan speaking with Michael Clifford on pages 84 and 85 of the Mail on Sunday well worth reading just for the wider message on it as well and our best wishes to John Egan uh, with his journey over the next while a couple of texts coming in as well on Rachel Blackmore let's not forget Megan Nichols won the bumper yesterday as well gave Nappers Hill a great ride for her father great bunch of lady jockeys around both flat and national hunt in Ireland and the UK from Morris O'Mahony and then another text male or female doesn't matter Rachel Blackmore is up there with the greats she wouldn't get the rides on horses for being female and you sure don't get to stay on those horses unless you're getting results awesome performance we'll be back after the break The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball you're very welcome back to Off The Ball this Sunday Neil Tracy with you until 7 o'clock for the next 5 hours we are continuing on though with the Sunday paper review I'm joined by Chief Sports Writer for the Irish Independent Vincent Hogan and Cleanna Foley freelance journalist and broadcaster with Off The Bench um, Guys I said there was a lot of GA coverage we need to get into it's probably spread across two themes I would say first of all is the the coverage of the Dublin and Monaghan training breaches and the suspensions for Desi Farrell and Seamus McEnany. And then there's also plenty of coverage as well on getting kids back into into training at the moment and, you know, the importance that that has. So I, I, I think that they're kind of linked, but I think there are two very different messages in it. I'm going to start, though, with the coverage of the the training breaches being made by a couple of... or the couple of teams being caught for training breaches. Um the piece we're going to start with is Tommy Connell on page 11 of the Sunday Independent. I think he's really, really strong on this. I'm going to hold it up here because I think the picture needs to go with it. There isn't a GA rule that can't be bent or broken. Sorry, I'm just going to move that into shot there. And he, they have a picture of the Monaghan training session from back in March, which saw Seamus McEnany be suspended. So in the Dublin situation, there was a group of about nine players along with a trainer like this is as clear cut a breach as you could possibly get this is a screen grab of the footage I can count I did did a quick count there in the ad break there's 25 different people out on that pitch 
there are also 12 cars parked along that little strip and you would imagine a lot more. And the point that Tommy Conlon makes is they must have known that they couldn't rock up to a training ground, any training ground in the county, without it leaking among the local community. So therefore, they must have banked on the time-honoured rural tradition of speaking in whispers, of looking the other way, of parochial omerta. Who wants to pick that up? Well, you know, I, I, I do think at least the dubs had the decency to try to do, do it covertly. Um, what Banty... McEnany was doing here, it's it's breathtaking um, that they just pitch up into Cordoff with what looks like a full-blooded training session, all the cars there, as if everything the rest of us have had to do uh, is meaningless. Now, I'm saying that as someone who's not entirely comfortable with what's almost the borderline criminalization of amateur athletes out in the field, I'm certainly not comfortable with some of the restrictions, particularly, and we'll probably go to that later, on, on our children. And for two of mine, I'm, I'm feeling it particularly strongly. And John Green is a very strong piece in the same paper on this. But look, there is there is no excuse for what Monaghan or Dublin did. And I think it's it, there's an interesting line, actually, from Mike Quirk, who's interviewed by Michael Foley mm-hmm. in, the, mm-hmm. in the Sunday Times. And I think it's a very valid one, because Mike Quirk is, of course, the leash manager. And he asks the question, how much are you going to gain? Do what you're supposed to do, and ultimately you're not putting pressure on players to do something they shouldn't be asked to do. Have a little more respect for them in their circumstances, and don't be putting unfair demands on people. Now, one of the things that strikes me about all of this, and I think it was Kevin McStay made the point during the week, a lot of these GA players nowadays are very highly educated, third level. Uh, some of them are teachers, some of them are in, in medical profession. What does it tell us about the culture within the GAA that they would go along with this? And I know that the GPA has some kind of confidential line that they can report being asked to do something that they're not supposed to do. But honest to God, if we're at a situation where a highly educated young man is afraid to say to the manager, we're not supposed to be doing this and I'm not doing it. And this seems to be a huge issue that they're, they're not confronting their manager. They're not saying we're not supposed to be doing this. But I, but I think that's absolutely the reality, Vincent, isn't it? Um, it is the reality, it, yeah. It, 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 um, Michael Foley is good on it also in the Sunday Times. Um, and actually, he comes to the same angle in a way that uh, that Tommy Conlon does as well, which is is that, you know, um, the, the notion of... of uh, so this ambivalence towards the rules in the GA, you know, and that there isn't, there isn't, uh, you, you try anything you can to do it, you know, to, 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 to kind of sneakily break the rules. But um, Pat Spillane actually in the Sunday world is good as well because he, he come, I, I'm like you, like I don't like to see any uh, amateur players being, you know, as you say, sort of, you know, crimi- almost virtually criminalised. But... Um, who's the one who is responsible for organising these? And Pat Spillane makes a really good point. Um, he said, first of all, you know, when I played inter-county, if Mick O'Dwyer had told us to do something, we would have done it. It didn't matter who. And I think that still there is that fear amongst inter-county players that if they don't do what the manager does, you know, it, it's going to come back at them, whether they'll be dropped or won't get opportunities or whatever it is. I do think there is that culture there. And secondly, um, this this notion of it was, it was very interesting to me that Dublin and Monaghan county boards both immediately handed down suspensions to their managements as if to close off the conversation and it is interesting to me that Crow Park has come back and said no we applied these suspensions in this case that isn't your responsibility we will be investigating this and Pat Spillane makes the point that you know it's very interesting that you know by doing that where the county boards trying to close off this conversation in case there'd be any further you know possible look into who was responsible for this because you would suspect it isn't players who are responsible for it they're there but who the, who are the people who are who are asking them to be there? And um, Michal Quirk is really good on that as well, you know. And 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 the stupidity of it for what, you know, you know how much extra you know advantage. And it comes back to the old thing that it's it, it the culture is so bent on winning now, 
And we heard a lot from, you know, the famous phrase esprit de corps, you know, that notion um, that Dublin had under Jim Gavin. You know, th that notion was broken, unfortunately, I think, in the public eye when we saw some of their players because we've all had to undergo this, these lockdowns. But, you know... Um, this, and there's been this narrative out there that, oh, the rules are wrong and, you know, they're stupid, so it's OK to break them. But, I mean, that, that can't possibly apply in life because most of us are keeping them. And it is really disappointing to see, um, you know, players doing this. Uh, but, but at whose behest is the thing that I'm really interested in? Who's organising these things? Because they're the ones who should be punished, I think, not the players. Yeah, I think that's I think, the... I think it's going to a fair leap of the imagination to suggest that no one within the various county boards was aware yeah. that this was happening. Um, it's, I find that barely credible. But I, I do think the two stories are linked, the, the issue of children and, and not being able to go out in fields and the short, the, just the complete lockdown of stuff that is hard to see the logic of it. And I, and I think this is, this is what's really frustrating people at the moment in this lockdown. Michael Foley makes an interesting point as well in relation to Monaghan specifically, and, and mm. this is probably very telling for border counties, that they're seeing the vaccination rollout going at a completely different pace north of the, north of the border. They're seeing freedoms opening up much quicker. And maybe the temptation to do something when they look at you know, opponents you know, getting freedom much quicker um, is is very strong and um but like you can't you can't defend what what what, what monaghan did it's it, it's it was borderline absurd what they were at yeah yes. it was with the the pictures as well just like just heightening how many people were there how official a session it was and just to go back on what she had said the both of you were saying about you know trying to figure out who's responsible. Are the managers putting pressure on the players? Um, Shane McGrath alludes to it as well in his piece in the, the Mail on Sunday. He says in a strident statement to the newspaper, the GPA revealed that players had informed it of being asked to breach regulations and take part in collective sessions. The GPA also put in place a confidential disclosure platform late last year to monitor compliance with the closed season ahead of the 2021 season, which is being used to allow for reporting of COVID protocol breaches of any kind. Breaches have been reported to this platform and reported upon given the platform is confidential and to ensure players feel they can utilise it, we will not be making any of the details public. Also, it's worth it's worth noting as well, and it's uh, mentioned later on in this as well, that all of these unauthor unauthorised training sessions are taking place. The GA players are not insured. You know, their insurance is not going to cover any injury if one of those Monaghan players went up for a high ball and came down and tore a cruciate ligament. They were not insured for what happened at that session. It also yeah, begs I, the question, Neil, was, was there a doctor on site? I mean, how could a doctor in conscience be on site, you know, given, given the restrictions? So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot that's very ropey about it. But um, like I say, I, I, I do have, I do see the, the other side of it. And, and Colin O'Rourke in his piece used the expression that we, we're becoming the valley of the squinting windows almost. And I hate this almost Stasi-like mentality that's there. But for God's sake, when you do what Monaghan did, you, you've got to take it on the chin. Yeah, and I think they're two completely different arguments. This argument about um, outdoor outdoor activity being, you know, safe with so few, you know, positive tests coming from it, and let our children back to play sport and let intercounty back as quickly as possible. That's a completely different argument from them actually breaking, you know, what our what the government has asked us to do and what most people are doing. And and you know, you know, you know, players don't want to be role models, but they get lots of privileges from being successful GA players and role models and you know I'm, I, I, I imagine there are parents around the country whose children said well we, how come we can't go back to training but the Dubs have been back and Monon have been back and Cork and Down have been back and we're here and there's loads of other ones like that question will have been asked you know and, and uh, there's no good answer to that I think what's interesting is really go I, ahead I, Vincent so, sorry Neil I, I think it was really exasperating for a lot of people like my two youngest kids they still live here they would be big into the GA. Um, they obviously haven't been playing now for the last year. But I find myself shouting at the television when someone like Colm Henry comes on the 6-1 News last Monday and starts justifying not letting the mountain 
fields because the danger of transmission in dressing rooms. Now, what planet has Colm Henry been on for the last year? Because no child, to my knowledge, has been in a dressing room in the last year. And, you know, there's very strong quotes here from Colm O'Rourke. The last time I was in a dressing room was 2019, he says. The contradictions are staggering. Tomorrow morning, I can go into a school environment where there are around a thousand people between teachers and students gathered indoors, yet I can't train the school team or my club outdoors. He also says, schools are more than education factories. The development of personality is key. And I must make a note of the next time I hear a student laugh loudly. And that chimes with my reality as well. I, I just find it exasperating that my 17 year old daughter, it's all right for her to go into a classroom tomorrow and spend the day in a classroom with 30 odd other students. It's not all right for her to go out in the field and have non-contact physical training, which would do her the world of good. The very things that would keep these kids healthy, they're being denied. And I think it's outrageous. Yeah, and John Green obviously has us another strong piece in that on that whole area of, you know, silence is anything but golden for a lost generation. And this notion that, you know, he's noticed and other people have commented on it, and including Dr. Neve Lynch, um, who's a consultant paediatrician in the Bon Secours in Cork, who is saying, you know, the new trait in children is that they're quieter. You know, they're, they're, I bet people have noticed that you, this, they've become more withdrawn, they're more anxious, more irritable. Um, and, and part of that is the fact that they can't. And I look at, they're all going to be back at school from next Monday. Um, the sporting calendar, if you like, even for training for, for adults, for the GA, I think it's, what is another week's time. Um, and then gradually, we're hoping to see children get back to training. But it, it has been a very frustrating time for everybody. Um, like I know Colm O'Rourke, you know, made the point, uh, you know, he quoted that Sonia Sullivan quote, um, you know, about cancellation of the Cork City Sports and the Morton Games, which is a huge blow to athletics in, in, in Ireland this summer, not least for, for uh, all athletes, but not least for people trying to qualify for the Olympics. But he, he was pointing, he, he points out to that, you know, he uses that statistic that she said that in Japan, you know, um, half a million athletes um you know in 787 races showed that only one case of covid could be linked but i do think though that japan is a very different people in japan if anybody has stood and waited for a, a, um an underground train in japan um the attitude of japanese people culturally to rules and regulations is very different than it is in ireland and you know that's the point that tommy is making and and like he's right like he, he, he his point his point is that you know that this ambivalence towards authority is baked into the into the, into the GNA's DNA. They're compliant when it suits them, non-compliant when it's convenient. There isn't a rule that can't be bent, broken, or undermined when the weasel gene kicks in. There isn't a referee that can't be confronted or abused. There isn't a foul in the book that can't be chanced. I mean, I would think that's I think that's quite common in a lot of other sports. He does make the point, and I think it's really important to make a point is that. You know, over the years that we've covered GA, Vincent, as well, um, you know, the, the sport has become way cleaner. There's less of people trying to bend the rules and, and go to disputes, you know, even off the field. Um, and that's why I think this is, was particularly disappointing, you know, because, you know, it, it, these are very high profile people in Irish sport. Um, and and just it undermines a lot of the hard work that everybody else is doing. But the notion about going back, you know, I don't understand why, you know, tennis and golf and and outdoor outdoor activity you know and and we can see it in our own communities i'm sure you can as well like i see teenagers in groups you know socializing around my village all the time at the moment and they're not wearing you know it, it's impossible to to keep them in um and and you know we know that there are people you know out playing social games of football um but it's a different thing when it's it's this organized you know thing i think that's different and it is interesting that shane mcgrath's very good on it today um uh, and it's mentioned as well in sunday world by sean mcgoldrick um that the gpa have have had players coming to them complaining because you know they are being asked to do stuff they don't want to do but, but what what happens with those complaints that go to the gpa do they go to the ga are they reported to the ga or what is the point of them well, you would presume they are. You would presume they are, and they're saying we're not publicising what they are. But I think the presumption is that that they will report them back. Um, uh, but surely, if, if surely they would be reporting them immediately, Cleena, in which case, surely the GA would have to act on them immediately. Well, yes, but uh, but uh, like, 
I mean, it comes back to the whole to the whole issue of how does the GA control control intercounty management teams, and the reality is, and this is this point has been made by several writers today, is they actually don't have any control on over them. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, but I, I'm just seeing this in Shane's piece that the GPA have this confidential line, but I don't I don't understand the point of it if there's no consequence. And there doesn't seem to, to my knowledge, to have been any consequence of any reports to the GPA. So I'd, I'd just love to know where where that information goes. Yeah, it's a fair question. I'm presuming, I'm presuming they can report that, the GPA will report that back to central to central powers. It would be, it would be logically the only point, but, but has it happened? Yes. I haven't heard it. Yeah, it would be, um, it would be strange to think that if there had been if there had been reports to that confidential hotline, as it says in the mail on Sunday, that, you know, were the only ones that could possibly have been reported, Cork, Down, Dublin and Monaghan, which, uh, and the only reason that we actually found out about them was because that they were photographed yeah. and it made it out to the media. It's, exactly. it's, it's hard to believe that if there were reports made to it, they were the only four that came in. And if there were more, what has happened? Yes, yeah, so, exactly. so uh, the statement actually says breaches have been reported to this platform, this, this whistleblower's platform, if you like, on behalf of players, um, and, fo- and followed up on. Given the platform is confidential to ensure players feel they can utilise it, we will not be making any of the details public. So it doesn't say whether that follow-up on, what that follow-up on means. So, the, I mean, what, what the impression I get, Cleena, is that the follow-up on is that the GPA contacts the county and say, down with this type of thing. Is that is that it? Is, is that well, the extent of it? Because... <laughs> I, I, I don't see anything beyond that here. Yeah, and, and that could be. I don't know either. We, we, you would, we would hope we might get some clarification from the GP on that. Yeah. Mm. Or maybe they're going back and saying, you know, so-and-so says he's not doing this and he's not doing it on these grounds and please don't ask him to do it again. I don't know. But isn't it mm. farcical that that's the level that we're at? And that's one of the issues that the GA has. And it's, it, is that, it is that big question about, um, and Shade is making that, is that, is that you know, the GA doesn't have control of this because it's really it doesn't have control of of intercounty management teams, who you have to have to assume have some involvement in players training when they're not meant to be training. Have the GPA been strong enough on this, Vincent? Because they've been relatively silent, I think, over the last while. I'm sure of those groups of Dublin players or of that group of Monaghan players. I know they all went along to us, but I'm sure there were. There, there surely were some that weren't comfortable with the situation and as we went back to we were speaking about how managers just have so much power and as Pat Spillane was saying if Mick O'Dwyer had asked his Kerry players to jump off a cliff they would have done it because they just believed in his every word but surely the GPA have to be doing a lot more than just saying if you get injured you're not going to be insured Well you see this this is I, I'd like more detail in this Neil because I, I really don't know exactly what they're doing beyond allowing people to report. Um, there's, there's no clarity here of what action they've taken. Um, and I would have thought, logically, the action to take is to contact central, the, the, the GA themselves and say, look, our players have been asked to breach this, this restriction. And um, But it's- look, I, I, I just think there's such an amount of frustration building up in people that to to you you look at what young people are going through and then you think of the dubs doing what they did what on earth were the dubs thinking they won't have a serious game and by that i mean a serious championship game for another four months what in god's name was the value of going to inish fails that morning it just it beggars belief to me and i've very little doubt that there's a lot more than dublin Monaghan, Down or Cork doing this. Very little doubt. Anecdotally, you hear about club teams doing it. There's a club team I've heard of that has the, the guards have to stop training sessions twice. A club team. Club activity isn't going to happen until September. It is mind-boggling that this stuff is but going it, on. But it, isn't that the obsession with winning, Vincent? It's the obsession with the thought control, and I've touched on this in the past, Cleaner, the thought control that comes into most serious, certainly inter-county dressing rooms, and the power imposed by managers 
that is never, it seems to me, challenged in any serious way by their own county boards. And when you have that, when you have that aura around management and they seek clearly irrational things like this, nobody is there to say stop. And, and I would ask that question again. At, at, at any of these training sessions, was there a doctor present? I presume there wasn't because the doctor could, I would imagine, be struck off in, the, in those circumstances. So what's going on here? Yeah, and uh, Michal Quirk is really good on it as well because one of the last lines in, in that piece is, you know, about the, the cult, as we've often talked about on this programme, for of the intercounty manager. And he says, there's too much, and he is one, there's too much made of the gig. People make out the intercounty job as akin to being a rocket scientist and something else. You never see your family, you're training 15 times a week. Leash is about two hours, 10 minutes from my door. It's not a hugely surmountable obstacle to be able to do something like that. Um, and just the, you know, he's and, and I'm always I'm always um, um, impressed by him because um, and I think I often wonder, is it because he also played basketball to high level and coached basketball and just brings another mindset to it, you know, um, and, and just, a, you know, a not 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 just this obsessive competitiveness that seems to be ruling a lot of, of intercounty senior at the moment, you know. If I could finish in just one part of that as well, like the point I was trying to make a few days ago was in my head I'm actually I'm removing the government guidelines from it entirely and I'm looking at it as a, a purely sporting thing what Monaghan and Dublin have done is that it just shines a light again on as Tommy Conlon was saying there isn't a rule in the GA's book that can't be broken and I didn't want to concentrate too much on the breaking government guidelines because I think We've all, we've all been guilty of, you know, stretching the limits of our five kilometre radius and stuff like that over the last while. And as we've mentioned so much, like curtain twitching and things over the last while. But it just does highlight how flagrant the abuse of any sort of rules seem to be in GAA. It's been an issue down the years with, you know, club month in April over the last couple of years where we've had stories of county teams training. And it just highlights again that there was a rule in place from Croke Park saying county teams are not to train until a certain date. But hey, presto, we're going to go and do it anyway. Yeah, well, it's certainly a kick in the teeth to anyone abiding by the rules. I'll put it to you like that, because... You know, if you're abiding by the rules as a senior inter-county man, as, as Mike Quirk is pointing out, you have to be wondering what kind of a disadvantage you're going to be at if this is widespread. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do go back to the, the thing. I, I am not comfortable with what has happened in the last few weeks in terms of the virtual criminalization of amateur athletes. And I wonder in years to come how we'll look back on this time. I, I really wonder how we'll judge ourselves what kind of people we became through this. You know, when this when this uh, lockdown started, everyone was talking about the, the word kindness and there was a, a lovely humanity in people. And I'm not sure that's there now. I, I, I think the anger in people is leading to a, a lack of kindness and, and a lack of, a, a lack of generosity, I suppose, of spirit at the moment. And look, I am not in any shape or form defending the senior inter-county teams doing what they did. But I, I really do feel very strongly that what's happening children, and, and there's, a, there's a good line in John Green's piece, it's what, how it's happening children. NFET and the government have determined that children cannot get back into sport for another three weeks. They're not supposed to even meet their friends for a walk. There's no longer any reasonable justification for this stance, if there ever was. We've been told that data would determine the response to COVID, only increasingly, it appears, that this is only partly true, because when the data does not support the conservative approach favoured by NFET, it is sidelined, a la the Colum Henry interview last Monday. It is exasperating. Certainly is. Um, well, I really don't want to be in your house when, uh, when those uh, briefings are taking place. <laughs> <laughs> your children wear helmets. <laughs> are they wearing helmets? You know me, I, I, I'm a teddy bear. <laughs> you know me. We'll... Um, do you know what we'll do? We'll release the we'll release the pressure valve now, and we'll uh, we'll go on to I suppose a bit more of an enjoyable GA read. Uh, also in the Sunday Independent, um, it was something I can't remember. Was it yourself, Cleaner, or was it Vincent that uh, that brought up Dermot Crow speaking me, about yeah. yeah when the final cut is the deepest one of all? There can be few worse feelings in Gaelic games than being told you're dropped for an All Ireland final. Vincent, t- take yeah. us away on this one. 
I really love this piece by Dermot Crowe, and I, I, I love it because it's a throwback to the times when the GA wasn't such a sanitized environment and where, <laughs> you know, the quotes weren't almost clinically prepared before you, 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 you got them. And there's a quote here from Noel Lane, who was dropped for the All-Ireland final of 1988, having scored 1-4 in the semi-final. And he describes Cyril Farrell calling him aside at training and telling him he wasn't going to make the starting 15. And the quote from Noel is, in fairness to him, it was the right way to do it. Because if he did it in the dressing room, I would definitely have clocked someone, whoever was nearest to me. I don't know, but I had time to cool down. <laughs> I just love that. I love that quote from Lane, who's, uh, who actually came on in the final against Tipperary and scored a vital goal. Um, and it just, this piece by, by, by Dermot, it, it also touches on Pal O'Neill from Kappa White, who was uh, the tip captain the same year, but was dropped for the final. Um, and it, some great quotes from Pa. Um, he had be, been preparing his speech. He got uh, Jerry Creeden, who was his um, manager in Kappa White, to help him write his speech in anticipation of the final. But he had no inkling that Babs Keating was going to drop him. And not alone was it announced in front of all the, of the team, the team was just announced and there was no Pa, pa Neal in it. Nicky English was then made captain for that game. Now, I'd be very familiar with this story because I ghost wrote Nicky's book subsequently. And Pa Neal talks about the amount of well-wishers who wrote to him coming up to that final, who were very sympathetic of his, his predicament. But I know for a fact that Nicky English's experience was the complete opposite, it was the polar opposite. He got such vicious abuse, absolutely vicious abuse in cards and letters going into that 1988 final. But it's it's a really good piece because it, yeah. I think Tommy Ryan of Donegal was dropped for the 92 final, the football final. I love this piece because it's a reminder of when people were candid when a journalist spoke to them, and I love that. Yeah, it's so rare nowadays. A long uh, time a ago, pretty... it was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a lovely angle, isn't it? Um, you know, and I love all these. And we've had loads of great nostalgia pieces, you know, written during lockdown and the lack of live action. But this is a lovely one. And, uh, you know, it's the it's the balance in the thing. Like, it's no lane saying, um, you know, saying what he says, but then, you know, looking back at it. And Tommy Ryan, you know, Manus Boyle was the guy who replaced him and scored not nine and, you know, was brilliant and kind of goes, well, you know, he, he doesn't argue with the fact that he did do do so brilliantly but but it does go into the politics of the background and who the selectors were and he came from a small he came from Terman, he came from a small club and was that a factor and it is it's very revealing really about what still goes on i think as well um but uh, uh, my your your favorite piece was about no lane not hitting the guy my my favorite angle when that was was that he went to the pub and drank a couple of pints and went home and slept it off <laughs> i was i was just going to say <laughs> that to calm him down before going home <laughs> <laughs> and it saved, saved the family the stress of having to deal with them when he went home. I thought that was lovely as well. It's a lovely piece and it's a great angle. It's, and I often think of that as like, what happens to people? who? How do they feel about getting dropped before big matches? It's a lovely piece. Yeah, Tlina, like I, I, I often think of um, what I was thinking of this this morning when I was reading this was the great documentary Year to Sunday on the, the Galway footballers in 98. And there's a brilliant part midway through it where it's the, the week of the All-Ireland final and John O'Mahony's picking his team. And there are two brilliant moments. The first of those is I, I can't remember the name of the player who it was, was doing one of those talking head bits to Cameron. It was obviously the team hadn't been named at this stage and they were they were talking through it. And he was saying like the margin is so small between numbers 1 to 15 between numbers 16 to whatever 25 or 26 and then no jersey at all like the margin between those is so small and there were guys on that group who would have been absolutely delighted to be getting number 20 on their back there were guys who would have been disgusted if they weren't on 1 to 15 and there was also a brilliant scene then where you couldn't even hear any dialogue and it was just a shot of John O'Mahony about 50 yards up the pitch walking side by side with one of the players that he had to deliver the news to I think that he wasn't going to be on the, the match day squad entirely that he wasn't going to be getting a jersey on the, the All-Ireland final day and you know he delivers the news and he obviously walks away and this player is just standing there and he he solos a ball to himself a couple of times he 
boots one away and he's just standing there in silence and you can't hear anything but you know exactly what's going through his head yeah, we, everybody can identify with this. It's such a great documentary, Pat Comer's doc. Um, and you know what, too? What struck me about this piece as well, Vincent, was like how how things have changed as well because now on the inter, in, in the inter-county game, you know you know 20 of them, you know the subs now are going to be, you know, there's there's probably, you know, at least five or six guys on that subs bench know they're going to go in now because the game has become such a, an extended game and, and the subs become so important at the level of fitness that people are at nowadays. So I think that's really interesting as well. I think, I think not to make a starting 15 while it hurts now, there is also the issue, there is also probably the possibility that guys who aren't starting have been told you know, everything is so pre-planned now, you'll be coming in and this will be your job. You know, it's a very different thing now, I think. It is. It's totally different, Lena. You're right. I mean, it's it's you've basically got a 20 man team now and yeah, uh, yeah. you have impact subs that know exactly what time they're going in. Uh, I mean, so different going back to 88. Power Neil didn't get brought on in that final and never played for Tipperary again. And, you know, so it, it, it had a much starker status, you know, going back all those years. And I know people, you know, people know they're going to be coming on maybe at a certain juncture in the game. I do, I do always feel really sorry for the modern, the modern player now who, in the culture of dummy teams and stuff like that, who, who has to keep the secret to himself that even though he's named at number 13 on All-Ireland final day, he's, he's going to be starting that game on the bench. And the team might be named on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. And he obviously has family and friends delighted for him that he's named in it and he has to keep that secret for the sake of the team that come half past three on All-Ireland final Sunday or semi-final or whatever whatever game it's going to be that you know he's going to be sitting on the sidelines watching it. I think Fergal Hegarty of Clare was he yeah. one of the famous famous cases of that where he couldn't even tell his family that he, that he wasn't starting and I think they all pitched up in Croke Park that day, looking looking forward to the big day. And uh, next thing, he doesn't start the game. So yeah, <laughs> very very cruel. But I mean, look, as Cleaner would what? know, when we when we were given uh, team announcements for big games coming up to the weekend, take them with a pinch of salt. They usually are meaningless at this this day and age. I don't even know why we carry them. <laughs> we used to have long debates about that about why do we even carry them anymore exactly. Um, we've still got about five, six minutes left here, guys. So, Cleena, I might throw it to you if you want to, if you want to throw out something for us to talk about. Yeah, well, there was a couple of pieces. Um, there, there, there are a few writers today just really looking back on Carl Frampton's career um, and, you know, his place in the pantheon of Irish boxers. So I think that's really well worth Mark Gallagher in the mail and Sunday McFoley in Sunday Times and a really good piece uh, by Stephen Looney in the Sunday World, actually. You know, he starts out with just... When is the superstar not a superstar? So it's really good stuff on Carl Frampton if you're a boxing fan. But the piece that I liked actually particularly was a piece with Ollie Dingley, who's a, 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 a rare Irish um, diving Olympic diver. Um, but I think it's a really good piece. John McGoldick does it um, just because it's a very honest piece, um, uh, not not just about the difficulties about qualifying for the Olympics and everything like that, but because Ollie, um, I've interviewed him before, he, he comes from a really high-achieving family. He has dyslexia. Diving and sport was his way to find uh, find an identity for himself and to find success for himself. But he still struggles badly, and he struggled very badly after Rio um, with anxiety and depression. And in this, he 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 reveals that you know he says I know it's on my strange that I can go out and perform in front of you know uh, he made the final in in uh, Rio, which was extraordinary. Um, but he says um, I, yet I feel absolutely horrendous about going to the supermarket. There was a period I lived off crisps I got from the vending machine at the pool due to anxiety about going to the shops. And I think that's really interesting. You know, this notion, you know, that, you know, no matter how good people are at sports, you know, they can struggle with a lot of stuff in their lives. And I was really delighted yesterday to see Hannah Turl and, um, you know, the Irish women's rugby team have been struggling really to find a, a good number 10 for a couple of years. And in only her second game in the position, she was brilliant. And she is a player who has been unbelievably honest as well about her struggles when she was in her very early teens. She had terrible, um, she had bulimia, um, she self-harmed, she had terrible body image issues and and, and uh, sport was her way out of it. So I'm always encouraged when I see pieces like this and I think um, they're well worth a read. 
Yeah, did you get a chance to read this, Vincent? I know Ali Dingley, he would have been something, a f- someone a few years ago that he, he was one of the real interesting stories of, of 2016. He was. I, I have to confess, I didn't get around to reading it, but it does strike me that, you know, for athletes hoping to be in Tokyo, that it must be an absolute psychological nightmare what they're going through at the moment in terms of trying to qualify. When can they try to qualify? On some level, are they even asking, is it even going to go ahead? We see cases spiking again in Tokyo. I, I think, you know, Ali has anxiety issues, obviously, but they must be compounded massively yeah. by what these athletes are being put through right now. I really feel for them. Yeah, you'd, you'd certainly you'd certainly forgive any athlete who has struggled for motivation at times over the course of the last year. And I know even to touch on the, the women's rugby, you mentioned Hannah Tyrrell. Like, I remember I was doing a couple of the press conferences. Catherine Dane and Aoife McDermott were both up for interview earlier on last week. And I think it was Catherine Dane was speaking about the course of the last year and how difficult at times it has been just to motivate yourself, that that was the biggest challenge throughout all these camps when you didn't know were they going to be playing a game in two months, were they going to be playing their next game in six months. And, you know, they played yesterday for the first time, for just the second game they would have played in, in 13 months. That has to have been an enormous mental toll on so many athletes. I think at least within a team sport, you probably have Zoom sessions and that, but for individual athletes it must be almost crippling what they're going through because the isolation of trying to stay healthy, stay really fit, you know, meet all your targets and doing a lot of it in isolation other than maybe with a single coach. I can't imagine how hard that is right now. Yeah, and, and not having the competitions because they, the qualifying competitions, and that's what happened to Ali Dingley, um, he, he was due to be going to Tokyo tomorrow for uh, qualifying uh, World Diving Cup and that got cancelled. And that's what's happening to a lot of them is they think they're going, then it gets cancelled. So while elite events have continued, their their schedules are constantly being you know changed and, and, and restructured and moved back. And so that, that has to be very difficult when you're trying to you know be in a really good physical and mental peak for a competition um, particularly ones of this importance, so that must be just so difficult for you mentally as well. It is. Very quickly before we finish up, Vincent, I will mention a golf piece you had brought up as well. This is Andy Bull in the Sunday Independent. Final round of the Masters this evening. Um, not all as it seems in players' version of the fight for racial equality. So the background to this story was Lee Elder, who was the first black man to play at uh, the Masters at Augusta. He was being honoured on the 50-year anniversary of doing so. Uh, on Thursday for what would have been the honorary first tee alongside Gary Player and Jack Nicholas. Now, Lee Elder, he wasn't well enough to actually take to the tee and, and play a shot, so he sat down on the fir- uh, by, on a chair by the first tee uh, and was, I suppose, honorary, was, uh, I suppose, virtually teeing off along with Gary Player and Jack Nicholas. But what a lot of people did not like one bit was... While he was pictured doing that, over his shoulder was the hand of uh, Gary Player's caddy and son, Wayne, who was holding up a box of the brand of golf balls that the two of them use, which they have a stake in. And the reaction, I suppose, to what was a fairly crass bit of guerrilla marketing from them. Yeah, this is this is a really depressing kind of story in my view. And I have to say... You know, ordinarily in normal circumstances, I would be at Augusta now, and I absolutely adore the gig. I really love the place. Sorry, sorry for sorry for bringing of, that up. <laughs> there, there's a lot of very false sanctimony that surrounds it too, and and I've never really warmed to Gary Player, who, you know, was in the, the when he used to do those ceremonial drive-offs with, say, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus. He always wanted to show how fit he was, and he'd nearly do he'd nearly do press ups on the tee just to show how superb his fitness at his age was. And and I always thought, for Palmer and Nicholas watching him do that, it was a little bit offensive. You know, just just be one of us. Don't don't start that. But you know, he has a very ch- checkered history in terms of South Africa and apartheid, Mr. Player. And there's a quote here, and, and you you've described what his son did there. And the son's answer to that charge is the only thought from that point was that it would be cool for fans to know what ball my dad was teeing off with. Who gives a fiddlers <laughs> what ball your dad was teeing off with, frankly? But also... It just shows the self-importance, he, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's breathtaking that it took them nearly 50 years to get Lee Elder there. 
a man who's 86, clearly in poor health, in need of oxygen just to be out on that tee, seems to be wheelchair bound, not healthy enough to drive the ball. Like, why did it take half a century to do this? It's just, it's just one of those little exercises in optics that seem to me to be very shallow. And the, the, there's a quote from Gary Player in his press conference. He does this press conference every year. And he describes Elder as somebody who experienced a lot of things that I also experienced in my life. Oh, my God. The what lack do you, of adult self-awareness. The lack of adult self-awareness in some of these people is astonishing. Um, I, ju I just think it's a very good piece. There's a lot of really good stuff in, in, in Augusta, by the way, in the papers that we didn't get around to. And obviously, Shane Lowry did make the cut. Rory didn't. Some good pieces on Rory and what's going on in his world. You know, but that, that's going to be a long running story, I'd say. Certainly will be. And unfortunately, we're right out of time this afternoon. Vincent Hogan and Cleena Foley, thanks a million for joining me on the Sunday paper review. And enjoy the final round of the Masters or Ireland against Belgium tonight or whatever it is you're going to be watching because there's so much on. We will thanks, do. Neil. Thanks, Neil. The Sunday papers on Off the Ball.